Hey, y'all, before we get to the show, I wanted to please ask you to rate and review Murder in Alliance. The more ratings and reviews we get, the more people that find us and the more people that hear this, the more likely it is we will get tips and leads to find out who killed Avon. Previously on Murder in Alliance. We are in the detective bureau at the Alliance Police Department. We're investigating the homicide of Yvonne Lane. Can you tell us your part in this? I asked him what it was, and he said to kill somebody. And at that point, I really didn't care about life or nothing. So why did David want this done? So David could have his little boy, and he wouldn't have to pay so much money. So what did David say to you? I'll pay you to do something for me. He asked me if I would do it, and I told him yes. Are you sorry for what you did? I can't believe I did it. It took advantage of me. This is Murder and Alliance, an active investigation into who killed Yvonne Lane. I'm Maggie Freeling. The trial against David Thorne in the killing of his ex-girlfriend, Yvonne Lane, officially started January 18th, 2000, with the prosecuting attorney's opening statements. The assistant prosecutors handling the case for the state of Ohio were Jonathan Bumel and Krissa Hartnett. Prosecutors forcefully argued that David hired Joe to kill Yvonne and that Joe was the perfect person to do it. He was broke and idolized David. Witness testimony, person after person, described Joe's conversations about David and his seeming obsession with him. The friendless teen would do anything for David Thorne, witnesses said. Then the prosecution laid out the motive. David was upset that he had to pay child support. Remember, in the months leading up to the trial... David was court-ordered to pay $358 starting January 1999. In March, money started being deducted from David's paycheck. The prosecution said that he owed $700 from the first two months of the year, January and February. So they said instead of paying, he'd prefer to get custody over Brandon. Plus, they also argued that Amy, David's girlfriend, didn't like Yvonne, so Yvonne was just a problem all around for David. Bumel was the one to make the opening statements. There was a solution to these money problems, to these relationship problems, and that was the elimination of Yvonne. And David Thorne had a person in mind to do it and had a cheap price. This is a voice actor. There is no recording from the actual trial that I can find. After their motive, prosecutors laid out their timeline. March 31st, the day of Yvonne's death, time cards show that David Thorne got off work at Dale's Cuda shop at 12.29 p.m. In accordance with their plan, he went to the Enoch residence, picked up Joe Wilkes, and took him to the Comfort Inn located at the Carnation Mall. Karen Enoch testified that Joe told her David was picking him up. This was around lunchtime, she said around 1 p.m. She didn't actually see David, but Joe said David was there, and then he left. Once at the mall, Joe said that David gave him the $100 to get a room and buy gloves and a knife. A Comfort in receipt shows Joe rented a room at 1.46 p.m. and paid cash. 
the manager testified at trial. That room was $59.76. Joe paid with a $100 bill. So his change would have been $40.24. And then Joe said he went to Kmart to get the gloves. A receipt from Kmart shows he bought batting gloves, $9.74, at 1.47 p.m. And this is just a minute after he checked into the hotel at 1.46. Joe could not have been in two places at once, but the hotel manager testified that their computer clocks were off by enough minutes to make the times fit. According to her, they were off 15 minutes on check-in and 30 minutes off on check-out. Now, it seems odd to me that they allow their clocks to be that off, but what do I know? Either way, the manager said that was the case, which would mean the timeline fits the prosecution's theory. After buying the gloves, Joe met David back at his car. They drove off. They went over the plan they had made. This was to be done with a knife as opposed to a gun because it was quieter. That this was going to be done at around 9.30 or 10 that evening because David Thorne would have the perfect alibi. He was going to be in his own shoot fighting classes up in Independence, Ohio. He was going to have his lion cub with him to draw attention to him. The rest of the day, they went to David Thorne's house, picked up this lion cub, they went to the Enoch residence, where David Thorne for the first time met Brent and Karen Enoch. They heard a lot about David Thorne for a long period of time from Joseph Wells. The Enochs testified that they all played with the cub for about a half hour, and then David left around 5 p.m. for his shoot fighting class. The Enochs and Joe then ate dinner, and after dinner, Brent Enoch was leaving for a side job. He was a union carpenter. Joe was going to help him and make some extra money. Brent said he would pay him his part after the job. On the way, Joe asked Brent to drop him off at the Carnation Mall after the job. Brent testified that Joe told him he was meeting David there and then spending the night at David's to clean David's garage. He went to the Carnation Mall, to the Comfort Inn, went to his room, started doing some drugs which had been provided to him from David Thorne to get him in the right mental state. He then went to the Kmart record show at 8.10 p.m. He purchased the knife, a lock blade knife, and then coming back from Kmart, he decided to go by the food court. At this point, ladies and gentlemen, a fateful event occurred. That's where he saw Rose and Chris and allegedly told them he was in town to do a job, to kill a girl. Then Joe walked 3.5 miles to Yvonne's house to allegedly do that job. The prosecution said Joe had been to Yvonne's house three times before, so he knew where the house was and how to get there. When Joe showed up, remember he said the door was open, there was no forced entry at the crime scene. And what follows, you heard last time, what Joe said happened. Did you grab her by the hair? Yeah. Pull her hair pretty hard. Yeah. She was standing next to the sliding glass door? No, she was sitting on the couch to begin with, then she jumps up and runs over the sliding glass door. After you cut her? Yes. According to the prosecution's account... This did not cause instantaneous death. Yvonne Lane still had oxygen and was still able to act and react to what just occurred. She wanted to get away from Joe Wells. She got up from the couch, took a couple of steps towards the sliding glass windows in the room you saw, rather small room, turned around a couple of steps back to the center of the room, and then fell down to the floor. 
They said Joe then panicked. He tripped over the TV, causing it to fall over her as he fled the house. One or two blocks down the road, he threw the knife into a storm drain. Then he made his way back to the main drag, State Street. He said he threw the batting gloves in a dumpster and walked all the way back to the Comfort Inn. Now, to me, based on how much blood was at the crime scene, I would assume the perpetrator would also be covered in blood. I encourage you to look at the photos of the crime scene to understand all of this and just how bloody it actually was. But Joe was not noticed by anyone walking nearly four miles down a main road in Alliance, back to the hotel, probably covered in blood. So to account for this, Bumel said, Because Yvonne Lane was injured in the front and because she walked away from Joseph Wilkes, he had little to no blood on him as a result of what just occurred. The morning after the murder, April 1st, receipts show that Joe checked out of the hotel at 8.35 a.m. The prosecution said that he then called David from a payphone at 8.28 a.m. and that David picked Joe up from the mall sometime after 9. Now, an employee for the phone company, Ameritech, testified at trial as to what calls were coming in and out of David's phone. They used this to establish that in the days leading up to the murder, Joe and David were planning how they would do it. They also used the calls to show that David established an alibi. Remember, he allegedly told Joe to kill Yvonne around 10 p.m. when he would have a solid alibi, leaving shoot fighting with Josh and the lion cub. Phone calls further show that David was at his house on the phone with Amy later that night. The phone company employee verified that the next morning, April 1st, someone did call David at 8.28 a.m. from a mall payphone. Prosecutors pointed to this as proof that David left work to pick up Joe the morning after the murder was committed. Now, at 9 a.m. when the prosecution said David picked Joe up from the mall, David did take a break from work. His co-worker at Dale's Cuda shop testified that David left for about an hour and a half and returned with McDonald's. The prosecution said during this time, David picked up Joe at the hotel and took him back to the Enoch residence. Shortly after this is when Yvonne's body was discovered. David was back at work and got the call from his grandfather. At the crime scene, prosecutors pointed out that there was no forced entry and nothing of value missing, insinuating it was someone Yvonne knew. One of the criminalists who was at the scene, Jennifer Bloink, testified that out of all of the blood evidence tested at the scene, nothing came back to anyone else other than Yvonne. There was no semen or other trace evidence found, and the few fingerprints found were compared to David, Joe, and run through the system. There was no match. During their search, detectives found a kitchen knife matching the set in Avant's home. Remember, it was a few blocks away, laying out in the open. This knife was also tested. There was no blood on it, not Avant's or anyone else's. But detectives did find a print on the tip of the blade. They got fingerprints of people involved in the case. No match. They also submitted through their computerized system, which would attempt to compare that fingerprint to anybody in Stark County who had been arrested, as well as anybody in Ohio 
who they had fingerprints on known to match. They were unable to connect that knife to the murder of Yvonne Lane. So far, the crime scene yielded no useful evidence to the police or prosecution. But then, three months after the murder, the police found a couple named Rose Moore and Chris Campbell, who said they'd had a damning conversation with a young man at the mall the very day Yvonne was killed. The police started putting the pieces together, which was the first time they had been given the name of Joe Wilkes. Joe was picked up on July 14th, and you've heard his confession. After his confession, he led the police to what they said is the murder weapon and the pants he wore. Remember, Joe said he gave David his clothes but forgot to give him his pants. So Joe tossed them behind a friend's house. Joe allegedly led detectives to another knife, not the one from the kitchen set, but a pocket knife, the knife he said he killed Yvonne with. It was in a storm drain. Two blocks away from Yvonne Lane's house, they did some digging in the dirt, and they recovered that lock blade knife. Again, nothing of evidentiary value was found on the knife. The criminalist said that there was a substance found on the handle, but was unable to determine if it was blood, much less if it was human or animal. Joe also took them to his pants, black pants found in Ravenna. Joe Wilkes took them to a wooded area behind a house where Joe Wilkes knew some people and recovered the pants that he wore that night. Bloink said the pants were received by the crime lab on July 16, 1999, and were very heavily soiled and covered in mold, which could affect testing. Again, nothing of evidentiary value was found on the pants. Pants that were allegedly at an incredibly bloody crime scene had no evidence on them. And so that's the evidence against David. There was nothing physical tying him or Joe to the scene except the knife and pants, which again, neither had any evidence on them. And if you're wondering about the bloody footprints that were found at the scene, the prints were never matched to Joe conclusively because remember, they didn't have Joe's shoes. The main evidence against David was Joe's testimony and the main evidence against Joe were the statements of Rose and Chris. Rose and Chris both testified at trial. They said they saw Joe at the Carnation Mall around 8 p.m. They said he told them he was in town for a job, and they said the job was to kill a girl. The card Joe allegedly wrote his phone number on for Chris was presented at trial to prove that Joe was there with Rose and Chris. But some details of what they remember changed between the time of their initial statements three months after the killing and the time they took the stand, six months after that. Remember, Rose initially told police Joe was in a white outfit with white pants. He had some Nike outfit on. It was was like a white, probably white, black, and blue. I'm not positive on the colors, but I know it was white for sure. It was like a white jacket. And he had like a white tank top underneath that, I think. And he had white pants. They looked like Nike pants. But now at trial, she put him in the black pants that were found in the woods. She also initially told police Joe's knife was an eight-inch knife in a sheath. At trial, prosecutors showed her a picture of the folding pocket knife, the one Joe allegedly bought at Kmart. And she said it's possible that's the one Joe showed her. Nothing was mentioned about a sheath 
or eight inches. She gestured at size, as in she held up her hand to visually demonstrate how big the knife was, but the size that she indicated was not recorded. But in her police statement, Rose said the knife was not a pocket knife. He showed us the knife that he had on him. I think it was in his pocket. And it was, it looked like a hunting knife to me. It wasn't no pocket knife. It was bigger than that. But now it was. Chris's testimony was relatively consistent with his statement to the police, particularly that it took him a minute to recognize Joe because he was in all new clothes, which for Joe, a kid who was usually houseless, was unusual. But his statement contradicted Rose's. Chris also said that Joe told them he was in town to do a job, to kill a girl. But remember, Rose said that Joe said some guy paid him to do it. But Chris... It's unclear exactly who his girlfriend was at the time. But the most contradictory testimony was actually from Joe's own mouth. Now, if you've been wondering what about Joe's trial, Joe didn't have a trial. Joe took a plea deal. He pleaded guilty to take the death penalty off the table and was given 30 years to life for his testimony. Part of that deal called for Joe to testify against David, the supposed mastermind of Yvonne's murder. But Joe's testimony was questionable. The fundamentals were basically the same as his confession you heard. He got to the hotel room earlier in the day, then got the batting gloves. Later in the day, he was dropped at the mall, bought the knife, walked to Yvonne's house, killed Yvonne, then walked back to the hotel where he spent the night. Then the next morning... David picked him up, and a couple of days later, the day of Yvonne's funeral, David gave him the remaining $200. That's on top of the $100 David had given him for the hotel room and murder supplies. The Enochs did testify that Joe went on a shopping spree after the funeral and showed the Enochs new rollerblades, work boots, gym shoes, and Nike socks. They thought the money was from helping David with the garage. But on cross-examination, Joe's story started to break down. Off the bat, David's attorneys, privately hired by his family, George Keith and Jeffrey Hopped, asked what happened at the precinct before the tape recorders were turned on. Joe said the detectives spoke to him for about 30 minutes before they started recording. During that time, they told him that David was in the next room, ready to testify against him for immunity. But remember, this was a lie, because David never spoke to the police. There was the one meeting, months earlier, when David lawyered up, and that was it. David was not in the next room, implicating Joe and asking for immunity, as the police told Joe. Legally, police are allowed to lie during interrogations, But during his cross-examination, Joe said some pretty damning things about what happened during those initial unrecorded 30 minutes. They told me what happened and how I did it and was showing me pictures. Again, this is a voice actor. Joe said that the police and prosecutors told him how the crime happened. They told you a lot of other stuff about this. They tried to 
tried to tell you about a dog that you hadn't seen, had you? That's very true. And they tried to tell you about a young child that was talking to you there that you don't have any memory of, do you? That's right. So the question, once again, is when you told them how much money you got and when, were you telling them the truth on July 14th? Joe admitted multiple times that he lied to the police. Defense lawyers also found some other inconsistencies. They asked Joe about the night of the murder, March 31st. And so you were very sure that Brent Enoch drove you to the Carnation Mall on that day, is that right? Yes, sir. The defense directed him to his statement from July 15th when he was interrogated. David, come back and pick me up later. He sent me there before he went to shoot fighting class. Then he picked me up from Brent's house, Brent witness. Brent Enoch and Summer, Karen were old. They believe the same picked me up. Joe's story changed. He said on the stand that Brent drove him to the mall, but initially he said David did. He even course corrected and explained that he'd lied again, that David did not take him or pick him up from the mall the next day. He also admitted to lying about the bag of clothes he gave David. You also told him that you gave him a bag full of clothes? Yes, sir, I did. That wasn't true? No, it wasn't. How did you get these pants you were concerned with being bloody out there and get rid of them? What did you tell these people? Remember, the pants were found behind Joe's friend's house. Nothing. I was with my friend that lives in the house there the day before, and I told her I was going to come out. She told me to come out about eight. She told me to knock on the bedroom window because she had been asleep. I don't remember who dropped me off. And I walk around the house, I exposed the pants, and knocked on the window. When was that? April 1st? April 2nd? I'm not sure. Had you gone there for that purpose? Did you just happen to have the pants with you? No, I had the pants with me. Okay, so at that point, you're carrying them around with you? Yes. Joe said he's just carrying around the murder pants. And then he also said that night he was wearing Summer Enoch's windbreaker, which was still in Summer's possession and has never been tested for evidence by the police. And then there's this odd detail. Joe said he did not remember speaking to Rose or Chris. Remember, Joe never mentioned them in his confession. And then on the stand, he said he saw them, but was too high on cocaine and acid to remember the conversation. This was the first time that Joe being on drugs was ever mentioned. Chris testified that Joe did not seem high at all to him, even though it was a fairly lengthy talk. Joe supposedly sat down and everything. This wasn't a quick passing hello, I'm off to kill somebody. And there were things that came out at trial that just didn't fit the prosecution's theory. To start, the prosecution said that Joe and David planned the murder over the phone a week before, pointing out over a dozen phone calls Joe made to David. But at trial, the Ameritech employee testified that it looked to him like all of the calls had been answered by an answering machine. In terms of the child support, the prosecution tried to make it seem like this was contentious. Why else would a judge have to order that David's paychecks be garnished? But the child support agent actually said that Avon would have had to pursue child support through the courts, hence the garnished wages, because she was on public assistance. 
That's just how the system was set up. Plus, prosecutors tried to make it seem like David wasn't paying. But the agent also testified that Ohio law prohibited David from giving child support directly to Yvonne. He had to go through the agency. So it's possible that David's child support money went to the state because Yvonne was on public assistance. That child support agent actually asked to be recalled for the defense to say that from what she saw, David and Yvonne had a good relationship. She didn't like the way the prosecution made her testimony sound. Now, you might be wondering about all of the blood evidence and how Joe, his clothes, and the alleged murder weapon didn't have any useful evidence on them. Well, unfortunately, at trial, David's lawyer did not present a qualified expert to rebut state's evidence. At trial, the coroner testified that Yvonne's time of death was within a 17-hour window. He placed her death sometime after 7 p.m., so from 7 p.m. to when she was found around noon the next day. He did not remember if he did a sexual assault kit, and he did not take body temperature. He testified that despite a 4-inch by 8-inch slice to her throat, which cut her trachea and internal and external left-side cardioid arteries and left her nearly decapitated, he said Yvonne was likely capable of some movement, and it's possible she could have said one to two words. That fits with Joe's story that Yvonne got up, walked to the sliding glass doors where the puppies were, turned around, asked him why, and collapsed. David's team did not present an expert to rebut any of this. You know, that the gaping wounds that had severed her vocal cords may not have left her able to speak or move, or that it seems unlikely that such a small knife, a 3.1-inch blade, made this injury. Or the fact that such a bloody wound would likely leave evidence in the crevices of the folding knife. No one even questioned why the coroner couldn't be more precise in his time-of-death estimate. In fact, David said he felt like his counsel was inadequate overall. The prosecution called 18 witnesses, and the defense only called three. David said the weeks leading up to trial, his attorneys assured him they were going to meet with him to go over everything. They told me that they were getting ready to come in every day for the next two weeks, and the next day I waited. I didn't show up. I called home. They called saying that they just had something that they had to do, that they'd be there the next day. Uh, didn't show up again. I called. My grandparents gave me their phone number. I attempted to call them. I kept getting, uh, for lack of better, I guess, their secretary, and kept saying that they were to get in contact with me, and then no phone calls were getting returned whatsoever, and I show up on the day of trial, and there they are with smiling faces like they're glad to see me. David also said that Jeffrey Hopped, in particular, often smelled of alcohol. It was it was like a, uh, I, I don't know, I guess it was like a high potent, like almost like a, if you walk into a cheap bar where it just has that whiskey and cigarette smell, that's, that's the only way I can really describe it. And was disheveled. He's in the same suit. It's wrinkled as if he slept in it. And he kept asking my grandparents for gum and candy. The, the, I mean, even the judge picked up on it to a certain extent because the judge told him to slow down and to 
speak clearly, and then other times even told him to speak up, that he was just murmuring along. I'm going to note here that years after David's case, Hopped died outside of his home from hypothermia due to or as a consequence of acute alcohol intoxication. Now, in fairness, it doesn't seem the defense was all bad. For example, on cross-examination of the coroner, the defense was able to get the coroner to say that it's unlikely the folding knife, the alleged murder weapon, made of Vaughn's injury. And the defense did call one witness that rebutted the state, Rick Webb. Rick Webb was buying his fishing license when he supposedly saw Joe buy the knife. And you say, what kind of knife was it? It was a, a fold-up charade, a brown-handled charade. Brown-handled charade. Rick testified that his license receipt showed the date he purchased his license was May 13th, six weeks after the murder. If this is true, it means Joe would have bought the murder weapon six weeks after the crime was committed. And you might be thinking, yeah, but the state presented receipts with dates that align with the murder. That's a good question. One we'll explore in another episode. In the end, it took the jury only three hours to decide they believed the prosecution's evidence and Joe's confession. Despite the inconsistencies, on January 25th, 2000, the jury found David guilty in complicity to murder. At the sentencing, the jury was deadlocked at the appropriate sentence. They didn't know whether to sentence David to death or not. At the time, he would have been executed by Old Sparky, a macabre nickname for Ohio's electric chair. David made an impassioned plea for his life to the jury and read me what he said to them. I respect you, the jury. I respect the job that you have done. I also respect that it was a hard job. I did not do this. And although you thought that the evidence proved it, I know in my heart and soul I did not do this. I need to tell Yvonne's family, I'm sorry that Yvonne had died. She was your daughter and the mother of my son, Brandon, whom I love very much. I'm here asking you that you permit me to write my son from prison and be his father. Because I know what it meant to lose mine at such a young age. And I wouldn't wish this on anyone. I just want to thank my family and friends, especially my grandparents, for all of the support they have given me throughout this whole case. And I wouldn't trade any one of you for the world. After almost two days of deliberation, the jury still couldn't agree. The judge eventually sentenced David to life in prison without the possibility of parole, where David still sits today. Coming up next time on Murder in Alliance. To me, from what I understand of the case, stuff just didn't make sense. The guy I knew that came into the post office that threw up his hand and waved and grinned all the time, and he's just the nicest guy ever, I thought, no, this can't be. He said that they put him in a room and they chained him to the wall by his arm and spit on him and they told him that they wanted him to confess. Brent Turvey, a nationally known criminal forensics expert, 
picked apart what he calls a botched case. Something's missing. I can't I can't understand. There's got to be more. He could have paid off his entire 18 years of child support with a check. Why didn't the prosecution turn this over and what is going on here? So it makes me feel like there's more to the story. Y'all, if you like this show, please consider joining the Unjust and Unsolved Patreon. It shows how much you care and helps us continue to tell these stories. Plus, you get some awesome bonus episodes, Q&As, and events as a thank you. And please, please rate and review. The more reviews, the more attention, and the more likely we're going to get tips and leads and the right ears will be reached. Murder in Alliance is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. Aaron Case is our legal intern, and Bob Mallory is our engineering assistant. For more information and resources, go to murderinalliance.com. You can find Murder in Alliance on Twitter and Instagram at murder underscore alliance and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Murder in Alliance is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at obsessednetwork.com. <laughs>